If you've been looking for a comprehensive Bible school curriculum that explores redemptive realities in Jesus Christ grounded in the Word of God, look no further. The goal of this podcast is to spread the life-transforming Word of God throughout the world for the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry and to build up the body of Christ in what Jesus has accomplished for us through His death, burial, resurrection, and seating at the right hand of God the Father. There's such an untapped potential for Christians to enter into their glorious inheritance in Jesus Christ. Together we will discover what Jesus has done for us by providing such a great salvation and how to appropriate the promises of God in our lives. Jesus said in John chapter 8 verse 31, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Each podcast season will cover one of the books that I have compiled over the years. You can find a complete listing of my Christian education material on my website at www.wordinspire.com. You're welcome to download these ebooks for free in PDF format for your own personal or ministry use. So let's explore these biblical truths and principles together that will absolutely transform our lives. God bless. Welcome to the Word of Life study series, Healing is the Children's Bread. This will be our last episode for this season that has been dedicated to the subject of divine healing. These last three episodes have been discussing biblical ways to receive healing. There are many different methods listed in the Bible whereby we can receive healing. I encourage you to pull out your Bible and follow along. The Manifestations of the Spirit We are discussing biblical ways to receive healing. There are many different methods listed in the Bible whereby we can receive healing. One way to receive healing is through the manifestation of one of the gifts of the Spirit. The nine manifestations of the Holy Spirit listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 8 through 10 are often divided into three separate categories because they naturally seem to fit there. Any of the nine manifestations of the Spirit may be used for the purpose of healing. However, we will most likely see the healing power of God manifested through the power gifts, the working of miracles, the gift of faith, and the gifts of healings. Oftentimes, these power gifts will work together. Working of miracles is defined as a divine intervention in the ordinary course of nature that can't be explained in the natural. For example, the dividing of a river by the sweep of a mantle is an example of the working of miracles in operation. 2 Corinthians 2.14 After Elijah ascended into heaven in a chariot in the whirlwind, Elisha received his mantle and smote the Jordan River. Dividing the waters by a sweep of his mantle was the working of miracles because that was a supernatural intervention in the ordinary course of nature. In the area of healing, many times miracles are received. However, this is not necessarily the working of miracles, but is simply called healing miracles. Everything that God does is miraculous, in a sense, but receiving healing by supernatural means is not a miracle in the same sense 
that turning common dust into insects just by a gesture is a miracle, Exodus 8.16, or turning common water into wine just by speaking a word is a miracle, John 2.7. Those two occurrences are examples of the working of miracles. Although the Old Testament people were healed and gifts of healings were in operation, Gifts of healings were more commonly in operation in the New Testament than they were in the Old Testament. On the other hand, the working of miracles was more prominent or more commonly manifested in the Old Testament than in the New Testament, with the exception of the gift of working of miracles in Jesus' ministry. Now I want to focus on the special operation of faith through the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. I like the Weymouth translation of 1 Corinthians 12.9 because it calls the special gift special faith. You see, this faith is special because every believer already has faith according to Romans 12.3. For example, there is saving faith, or faith to receive salvation. Ephesians 2.8 For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. The faith by which we are saved is given to us through hearing the word. The Bible says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10.17. But the manifestation of faith is distinct from Bible faith. It is a supernatural manifestation of one of the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit. The manifestation of special faith is a gift of the Spirit to the believer that he or she might receive a miracle, whereas the working of miracles is a gift of the Spirit to the believer that he or she might work a miracle. One gift receives something, and the other does something. But these gifts are very closely related. We're just differentiating between them for the purpose of defining them. So then, we said that the manifestation of special faith is separate and distinct from Bible faith. It is also distinct from the fruit of faith that we're taught about in the New Testament. Galatians 5.22 But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. Galatians 5.22 says that faith is a fruit of our born-again, recreated human spirit. However, if we look up this word in the original Greek translation, we will find that it refers to faithfulness. The fruit of the Spirit are for character, but the manifestations of the Holy Spirit are for power. A fruit is something that grows. So faith, or faithfulness, is a spiritual fruit that grows in the life of the Christian to establish him or her in spiritual character. The manifestation of special faith, however, is given supernaturally by the Spirit of God as He wills, according to 1 Corinthians 12.11. So we can see that there are different kinds of faith. Bible faith from hearing God's Word, the fruit of faith that develops in our spirit after salvation, but the manifestation of special faith comes after the baptism in the Holy Spirit, is received, and is as the Spirit wills. 1 Corinthians 12.9 to another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. Then in verse 11, all these are the work of the one and the same Spirit, and He gives them to each one just as He determines. Many times people, even Christians, who haven't studied the Bible say, well, if God gives me faith, I'll have it, and if He doesn't, I won't. They read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, to another, faith, and they may think that's how all faith works. But that verse is talking about the manifestation of special faith, which is separate from all other kinds of faith. The manifestation of special faith is a gift of the Spirit to the believer that he or she might receive a miracle. 
Remember, the working of miracles employs faith that actively works a miracle, but special faith employs faith that passively expects a miracle as a sustained or continuous action. There may not be anything that the person sees at the moment to confirm that he or she has the answer, but special faith will carry over a long period of time. In other words, its manifestation can be sustained or continued for the purpose of receiving a miracle. This special faith is also a supernatural endowment by the Holy Spirit, whereby that which is uttered or desired by a person or spoken by God eventually comes to pass. In other words, when this power gift is in operation, we believe God in such a way that God honors our word as his own and miraculously brings to pass whatever we believe or say. So the miracle, utterance, assurance, curse or blessing, creation or destruction, or removal or alteration has to manifest when it has been spoken under the inspiration of this gift. Smith Wigglesworth said that if we will take a step of faith, use the measure of faith we have as a Christian, when we come to the end of that faith, very often this supernatural gift of special faith will take over. Under Wigglesworth's ministry, at least three different people were raised from the dead. In his book, Ever-Increasing Faith, Wigglesworth related one instance of his neighbor being raised from the dead. One day, Wigglesworth visited a sick neighbor who had been close to death. After coming home from an open-air meeting the following day, Wigglesworth learned that his wife, Polly, was at his neighbor's house. As Wigglesworth approached the house, he heard screaming. He went inside and found the sick man's wife crying, He's gone! He's gone! Wigglesworth said, I just passed by the man's wife and went into the room. Immediately I saw that he was gone. I could not understand it, but I began to pray. My wife was always afraid that I would go too far. As she laid hold of me and said, Don't, Dad, don't you see that he is dead? But I continued praying. I got as far as I could with my own faith. Then God laid hold of me. It was such a laying hold that I could believe for anything. The faith of the Lord Jesus laid hold of me, and a solid peace came into my heart. I shouted, He lives! He lives! and my neighbor is still living today. As I said before, the working of miracles performs a miracle, but the gift of special faith receives a miracle. So the working of miracles is more of an act, whereas the gift of special faith is more of a process. We can see that by the gift of special faith, the miraculous was manifested in the scriptures. People were supernaturally fed and sustained. Angels stood guard over and protected the servants of God. Men like Daniel were delivered from the ferocity of beasts, and the dead were raised to life. But the present-day use of this power gift is still the same. In the same way that the gift of special faith was manifested in Bible days, it can be manifested to receive supernatural blessings, protection, or provision today. By this power gift, the dead can be raised, but it takes supernatural faith, special faith, for those things to happen. The three gifts of power, the working of miracles, the gift of special faith, and the gifts of healings will very often work together. In the case of raising the dead, all three of these power gifts work together. First of all, in raising the dead, it takes supernatural faith, the gift of special faith, to call a person's spirit back after it has left the body. Then it takes the working of miracles because the body would have started to deteriorate, as in the case of Lazarus, John chapter 11 verse 39. And then raising the dead also takes the manifestation of gifts of healings, because if the person who was raised from the dead wasn't healed, 
then whatever he or she died from would still affect the body and he or she would die again. So the person would have to be healed too. Therefore, all three of the power gifts are in manifestation when someone is raised from the dead. So we have looked at the power gifts of the Holy Spirit, the gifts that do something, mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 and 10. We have discussed the working of miracles and the gift of special faith. Now I want to focus on gifts of healings. In the original Greek translation of 1 Corinthians 12, 9 and verse 30, this gift is listed as gifts of healings. Both gifts and healings are in the plural. Therefore, we will refer to this spiritual manifestation of the Holy Spirit as the gifts of healings. As we study the gifts of healings in Scripture, we see that they are manifested for the supernatural healing of diseases and infirmities without natural means or of any other sort. For example, Luke, the writer of the Acts of the Apostles and the Gospels that bear his name, was a medical doctor by profession. He accompanied Paul on many missionary journeys and was traveling with him when they were shipwrecked on the island of Melita. When we read the account in Acts chapter 28, nothing is ever said about Luke ministering to anyone while they were there. But the Bible says that Paul ministered to several on the island who were sick or had diseases, and they were healed. And how? By the supernatural power of God, not by some medical or natural means. Acts 28 verse 8. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him, and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. Now some have mistakenly thought the gifts of healings refer to the fact that God has given us doctors and medical science. Of course, we believe in medical science and doctors and thank God for what they can do. We are certainly not opposed to them. But the gifts of the Spirit are supernatural in origin. They have nothing to do with medical science. Healing that is supernatural doesn't come by a diagnosis and the prescribing of treatment. It comes by the laying on of hands, anointing with oil, or sometimes by just speaking God's word in faith. So we not only believe in natural healing, but we also believe in supernatural healing. Now the main thing we need to understand is that there is a difference between the manifestation of the gifts of healings and receiving healing by one's own faith in God's word. That is why I am emphasizing that people can receive healing simply by exercising faith in the word of God, because it always works. There is no as the Spirit wills clause associated with it as it is with the gifts of healings in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I believe that God's primary and best way to receive our healing is through simple faith in God's promises. That way, what gets us healed keeps us healed. We are less likely to lose our healing because the same faith that got us healed in the first place continues to work in our spirit to keep us well. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active. However, please keep in mind that it may take an individual months of study and meditating on God's word to get faith in their heart to be healed, but it's worth it. If we don't have that kind of time, then we need to look to God for a manifestation of gifts of healing. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 1 Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. So when people are not at a place spiritually to receive healing on their own, which is the first and best method, the Lord has provided other avenues to be healed like spiritual gifts and ministries with a healing anointing on individuals. So when a believer with a special healing ministry draws attention to that anointing, 
It is not to draw attention to themselves, but to raise the expectancy of folks. As a result, they wouldn't need any more faith than just to expect Jesus to heal them through that believer as the gifts of healings are in manifestation. Mark 11.22 Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, Go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. For instance, one could use the principles of faith in Mark 11.22-24 in relation to healing any time and every time, since it falls under whatever you ask for in prayer, and is supported by countless other scriptures. So our confession would be, I believe I receive healing for this fill-in-the-blank part of my body. God honors faith in his word, so the healing power will manifest, as Jesus said, according to your faith, be it unto you. Through this method of simple faith in God's word, no one needs to lay hands on us. No one may even know about the condition. But God's power would still fall on an individual who takes God at his word and receives it for themselves. However, when the gifts of healings are in operation, they're manifested through another person unto us as the Spirit wills. That's the difference. Remember, the healing always comes from God, regardless of the method. So let's now look at healing as a gift versus gifts of healings. Some have said, anytime you receive healing, it's a manifestation of the gifts of healings. But I disagree with that statement. Healing is a gift all right, in the general sense that anything you receive from God would be a gift. But that doesn't necessarily mean that these spiritual gifts are in operation. For example, when one stands on Mark 11.22, as mentioned before, receiving healing through that method is not gifts of healings. Others have taken this reasoning one step further by saying, well, healing is a gift, so anytime you get healed, you have received a gift of healing. But I can't accept that explanation either, because it doesn't line up with Scripture. Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 12.28. And in the church, God has appointed first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret. Notice in verse 28 that God appointed some in the church. Paul isn't talking about spiritual gifts, because he said in verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. No, Paul is referring to men and women equipped with spiritual gifts for ministry offices. God set members equipped with spiritual gifts in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and so forth. We see the gift of the apostle, prophet, or teacher is a ministry gift given to the church, not an individual gift that someone might receive, as stated in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8 and 11. In other words, it's not given to bless ourselves. It is given in order to bless others. It's a ministry. 1 Corinthians 12.28 goes on to say, Then workers of miracles, meaning after those who are equipped with the ministry gifts that Paul just mentioned, there are some in the ministry who are equipped with the gift of working of miracles. A better way to say it would be that the gift of the working of miracles operates by the Holy Spirit more consistently or more often in some people's ministries. Next, Paul mentions the gifts of healings, 
and he asks a few rhetorical questions. Does everyone have the ministry of the apostle? Well, certainly not. Does everyone have the ministry of the prophet? No. Does everyone have the ministry of the teacher? No. We could all teach to some extent, of course, but there are those whom God has put in the church who are specifically equipped or anointed by the Holy Spirit with a teaching gift or anointing. So we see the gifts of healings are not referring to gifts given to individuals to bless them personally. They are ministries of healing that are given to some in order to bless others. I like to say it this way. The gifts of healings are supernatural manifestations of the Holy Spirit that are manifested through someone to someone else. A special healing anointing can be imparted to any believer called to minister to the sick in a specialty area. Since God has provided a diversity of functions in the body of Christ, so that an interdependence is cultivated within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we have mentioned that gifts of healings in the Greek refers not to just a general healing, but healing in different areas of the human body. With that in mind, it seems that the Holy Spirit will manifest healing more often through certain individuals for specific ailments or conditions. For instance, in the natural, we have eye doctors, or dentists, chiropractors, heart specialists, and so on, who specialize on certain parts of human anatomy. The Holy Spirit can also use any believer at any time to minister healing to others in a general sense, but it seems that certain individuals are specially anointed to minister more often to eye problems or hearing or tumors, etc., with greater success. Remember in 1 Corinthians 12.28, also those having gifts of healing refer to members in the body of Christ with specific healing ministries of certain areas of the body as well as in a general healing sense. This principle of deferring to other ministries can be seen when Philip the Evangelist had preached Christ in Samaria and many folks were saved in Acts chapter 8. After Philip had water baptized the disciples, he could have prayed for them to also be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Yet he deferred to Peter and John, who seemingly had a special ministry along those lines. Acts chapter 8 verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Another example, all believers are to share Christ with the lost, but evangelists and exhorters, Romans 12.8, have a special anointing to win souls to the Lord. My spiritual gifting is in teaching and ministering the baptism with the Holy Spirit. If a friend of mine who is an evangelist or an exhorter, was to come with me, and we came across an unbeliever, I would defer to my brother to do the ministry. But once that person got saved, my friend would then in turn defer to me to get him or her filled with the Holy Spirit. This is how the body of Christ is optimized in its operations. Of course, if my evangelist friend was not with me, I could still share the gospel and witness to the lost. Altar care teams should function this way. Everyone is equipped in a general sense to minister to a variety of needs, but we should defer to specialized ministries when they are present in order to maximize the anointing for the benefit of others. The Healing Anointing Acts 10.38 indicates that the terms the anointing, the Holy Ghost, 
and the power are virtually synonymous with each other. This means that we are able to use these terms interchangeably when we are discussing the subject of the healing anointing and the power of God. Acts 10.38 How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good, healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. First, let's discuss the broader subject of the anointing before we draw in the application of healing. As a born-again Christian, we are already anointed. What does anointing mean? Well, this term has its use from Genesis to Revelation. In the Old Testament, olive oil was poured upon the head of the prophet, priest, and the king to be commissioned for service. It represented the Holy Spirit upon their lives to empower them to carry out God's work in the earth. Leviticus 8.12 Moses poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Consider the life of David. After he was anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel in place of Saul, like Samson, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David, who was only a teenager at the time, enabling him to kill a lion and a bear. David, through faith in God's word and the anointing upon his life, faced Goliath, who was one big bad dude. It was his faith in God that released the power of God, the anointing upon David to kill Goliath. 1 Samuel 17.34 But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. In 1 Samuel 16.13, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Consider Samson, who exhibited great exploits of strength. It was because he was anointed with the Holy Spirit and power. All the prophets who operated in spiritual gifts, they also were anointed by the same Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, during the Old Testament days, only a very few people had the Holy Spirit upon their lives, but never in them. That came with the New Covenant after Jesus' resurrection, John fourteen seventeen and chapter 20, verse 22. So let's read that account of Samson in Judges chapter 14 verse 5. Samson went down to Timnah, together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power, so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands, as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. All the events recorded in the four Gospels were still considered to be under the Old Testament era with the Old Covenant still in effect. Yet the Holy Spirit was active upon the lives of the Old Testament saints, even until the beginning of the Age of Grace. Isaiah 10.27 And it shall come to pass in that day, that his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder, and his yoke from off thy neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. In Luke 4.18, Jesus was reading from the book of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
The baptism with the Holy Spirit is the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon the life of the believer to empower us to do our part in helping fulfill the Great Commission in power. 1 Corinthians 4.20 For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. In John 3.34, it states that Jesus had the Holy Spirit without limit. The entire measure of the manifestation of the Spirit of God was on Jesus. Isaiah 11 verse 1, Luke 4 verse 1, verse 14, and verse 18 through 19. Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit at the baptism of John in Luke 3.22. It was then that Jesus began his ministry in the power of God. Now the church of Jesus Christ, his body, is now anointed by the Holy Spirit as he was when he walked on the earth 2,000 years ago. Mark 5.27 When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. In Luke 6.17, Jesus went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Matthew 12:28. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. As Christians, We all have the same anointing, the person of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. The capacity and motivation to follow after God has already been built into our spirit through the new birth. Unlike religion that requires the individual to muster his or her own personal resources to masquerade as something that they are inherently not, this is what Jesus referred to as living water in John 4.10. Jesus went on to speak of the dual work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. The Spirit within, the new birth, and the Spirit upon, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. The anointing within is primarily for our spiritual benefit, but the Spirit upon is for every believer to fulfill the Great Commission with power, referred to as rivers of living water in John 7.37. Jesus was our example to follow and to continue his work until his second return, John 14.13, not our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, Luke 24.49. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Acts 1.8 But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 1 John 2.20 But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know the truth. As for you, the anointing you receive from Him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as has taught you, remain in him. The Greek word for anointing is charisma, which is the root word for charismatic. The anointing is synonymous with the person of the Holy Spirit. We can use both words interchangeably and still be meaning the same thing. The anointing is simply an adjective that describes the operations and workings of the Holy Spirit. The influence that the Holy Spirit has upon the lives of God's children or his manifest presence in a corporate gathering of Christians, which is known as the corporate anointing. The King James Version of the Bible translated this Greek word as unction, 
This word has the basic meaning as anointing. However, it has further meaning of spiritual fervor or zeal. 1 John 2.20 in the Amplified But you hold a sacred appointment. You have been given an unction. You have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all know the truth. But as for you, the sacred appointment, the unction, the anointing which you have received from Him abides permanently in you. It is easy to misunderstand the anointing as some esoteric cosmic force, like use the force Luke in Star Wars, impersonal and generic, like some forces of nature such as electricity or gravity, invisible yet very real. Certainly the anointing is a powerful energy that produces tremendous results. For example, parting of the Red Sea, raising the dead, the blind receiving their sight, the lame walking, and any other miracle that we can think of. The anointing is the result of a person the person of the Holy Spirit. The anointing is the grace of God, the power of God, the creative force of God manifested through the person of the Holy Spirit. He is God, the Holy Spirit, not an it. The Holy Spirit can be grieved, Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit can be resisted, Acts 7.51, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can be blasphemed. Mark 3.29 But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an internal sin. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. Matthew 28.19 Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The anointing, the Holy Spirit, the power of God, They are all synonymous terms. The anointing and the power of God is all talking about the same thing, the mighty Holy Spirit. So when we lay hands on folks in faith according to God's word, our expectation is that the power of God that rests upon our lives will flow through us into others for their healing, deliverance, and blessing. The anointing is also tangible. The word tangible means perceptible to the touch. In other words, something that is tangible is capable of being touched. For example, we know that the anointing that went into the woman with the issue of blood in Mark chapter 5 was tangible because Jesus knew immediately when the power went out of him. Jesus was aware of an outflow of that healing power, and the woman was aware of the reception of that power. So the power had to have been tangible. The anointing is measurable. In other words, some individuals have a greater manifestation of the Spirit of God operating in their life and ministry than others. Concerning the individual anointing, We know that God anoints individuals to minister. There are different offices in which God calls them to minister, the office of the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. Jesus stood in all five of them, so he had the anointing that goes with every office. Jesus had the anointing without measure, John 3.34. Members of the body of Christ have the anointing in a measure. Of course, Jesus was and is the Son of God. But Jesus was not ministering as the Son of God. He was ministering as a mere man anointed with the Holy Spirit. If Jesus was ministering on the earth as the Son of God and not as a man, then he wouldn't need to be anointed. But the Bible plainly states that Jesus was anointed in order to minister on the earth. Luke 4.18 and Acts 10.38 Now in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 9, When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. 
otherwise not. The anointing for ministry automatically comes with the calling to stand in whatever office God has called us to. But the healing anointing is something different and separate from a ministry anointing. Every believer can lay hands on the sick in obedience to God's word and folks will get healed. However, Jesus as head of the church will anoint individuals with a greater anointing to bring healing to the sick. We need to understand that healing is by degree. And the degree of healing is determined by two conditions. Number one, the degree of healing power administered to a member of the body of Christ. A person can be less anointed or more anointed to minister healing, just like a preacher can be less anointed or more anointed to preach. In the same way, a person can be less anointed or more anointed with the healing anointing. Luke 5.17 One day as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law, who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there, and the power of the Lord was present for Jesus to heal the sick. The second condition that determines the degree of healing is the degree of faith released by the individual to give action to that healing power. What was the power that flowed from Jesus' hands or was stored in his garments? Was it power that was inherent in him as the Son of God? No. Where did that power come from? It came from the Holy Spirit. And that same power, the healing power of God, is available today because the Holy Spirit is upon us today. Acts 10.38 How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good, healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. By Revelation Knowledge This natural realm that we know of as contacted by our five physical senses is a product of the spiritual realm, which in turn is contacted by our human spirit. As a result, the natural realm and its laws and operations is very similar in parallel to the spiritual laws that govern the spirit realm. Why else would Jesus, in all his parables, use so many natural, concrete examples to illustrate abstract, unseen, spiritual truths, like the parable of the sower, among many? I believe that this was by design, and not by accident. God in his wisdom made our natural world a reflection of the spiritual world, so it would be easier for us to understand it. In other words, this physical world is a visual aid to understand the spiritual world. Romans 1.20 For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what He has made, so that men are without excuse. For example, in the natural, we have this big ball of fire in our solar system called the sun. It is a power source for all natural life on this planet of ours. Without it, Earth would be a cold, dark, dead planet. Among many things, there is one essential contribution that the sun makes for this planet, light. Natural light is the key ingredient to photosynthesis in plant growth, which is the foundation to our food supply on this planet. Light also illuminates this planet so we can see all that God has created and come to understand it in all its wonders, color, and marvelous variety. As natural light produces life and illumination, so also the Word of God has the same effect upon us for the spiritual realm. God's Word is spiritual food, Luke 4.4. It's the bread of life for our spiritual development. It's a revealer of spiritual truth, and it's a portal or door into experiencing God's kingdom. Psalms 119.130 in the Amplified. The entrance and unfolding of your words give light. Their unfolding gives understanding, discernment, and comprehension to the simple. 
The Bible acts as our spiritual eyes into the unseen realm that is more real than this natural realm. The Bible is the truth that reveals things as they really are. Revelation knowledge is spiritual understanding revealed to the spirit of a person. This spiritual light of God's revelation knowledge is a key ingredient to our development, growth, and spiritual maturity. It is the creative and life-changing power of God that is at work in us who believe. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God which is at work in you who believe. Luke 17.20 Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. John 6.63 Jesus said, The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. In this dispensation of grace that we live in today, the Holy Spirit has been sent forth to be our teacher, comforter, advocate, counselor, and one called alongside to help. This is what is meant by counselor. In the Greek, it's parakletos. He lives inside us to make Christianity a reality and not a dead religion. John 14, 16. And Jesus said, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor, to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. One of the main tasks that the Holy Spirit fulfills in the life of the believer is as our teacher or mentor. The Bible calls us disciples, which is disciplined learners of Christ. The Holy Spirit is our master teacher. He takes the truth of God's word and reveals it to our spirit on a personal basis. John 14:26. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. In John 16:13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. 1 Corinthians 2.9 However, as it is written, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Holy Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The Apostle Paul was an avenue through which the Holy Spirit spoke through and revealed many of the wonderful truths about redemption that we enjoy in the New Testament. The Believer's User Manual for this glorious redemption in Christ. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 2 Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation. As I have already written briefly, 
In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Therefore, his prayer for the saints is that they would come to know, understand, and act upon these redemptive principles in order to appropriate God's amazing grace in their lives. Ignorance of these truths is costly, according to Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. So the obvious first step before acting on revelation truth is to know revelation truth. The source is the Holy Spirit through God's word, and is something we must ask for, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. I personally have been praying this prayer regularly over my life, personalizing it by putting my name into it, since I found out about it in the late 1980s. Since then, God has been so wonderfully pouring into my life the spirit of wisdom and revelation concerning the hope to which he has called me, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, his incomparable great power to me who believes. The Healing Power of God A good analogy for understanding the anointing or the power of God was made by the late Reverend John G. Lake when he said electricity is God's power in the natural realm. Holy Spirit power is God's power in the spirit realm. You see, just as electricity is in existence in the natural world, the power of God is in existence in the spirit world. And just as there are laws that govern the operation of electricity in the natural realm, there are also laws that govern the operation of spiritual power. The problem has been that in times past, we have thought that if the anointing was present, it would automatically manifest itself and just work automatically. That's just not so. For example, electricity has been in existence in the earth since God created the universe. But did that electricity just automatically light up a house, cook a meal, or warm or cool a house? No, because for many years, man didn't even know electricity existed or understood how it operated. Even after electricity was discovered and a man knew it existed, it didn't automatically begin to operate. People had to come in contact with it somehow to make it work. Acquiring the knowledge of natural laws that governed electricity was essential. Then over time, the practical application of that knowledge has spawned into all the wonderful inventions that we enjoy and benefit from today. In other words, Adam and Eve could have had a computer and a microwave oven because the natural laws were in operation for them to tap into at that time. What they lacked was the technology, the understanding of how to work it. So it is with Christians. When we fail to tap into our glorious redemption and inheritance in Christ, we are living in the spiritual stone age of barely getting along in life, hardly scratching the surface of all the mighty precious promises that God has given us for all things that pertain to life and godliness, 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 1 through 4 and 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 through 21. Again, what is the difference? The key to unlocking God's grace in our lives is revelation knowledge. Well, if we could just get into our minds the fact that the healing power of God is in existence in the spirit world and that it also has laws that govern its operation, then men and women could learn to tap into that power and be blessed by its benefits. I've heard people ask, if the power of God to heal exists, why doesn't it just manifest automatically on our behalf? That's where we've missed it. We've thought, well, if it's so, it'll just manifest by itself. But no, there's something that has to be done on our end before there will be a manifestation of the healing power of God. It would be like saying, well, if it's God's will for us to have electricity in our homes, then when lightning strikes outside, 
It will automatically heat our homes, cook our food, and run our appliances. Obviously, we have to learn how to work in cooperation with those laws of nature in order to harness its power for our lives. So it is with the power of God. Here's an important note. The spontaneous display of lightning in the sky reminds us of the presence of electricity in the world with a wonderful potential that can be tapped into. Today, we have learned to do so much through more controlled and predictable manners to harness that power. The manifestations of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12.7 is a display of God's power to produce signs and wonders, which includes gifts of healings for our lives. These manifestations of the Holy Spirit are as the Spirit wills, according to 1 Corinthians 12.11. They are spontaneous and out of our control. Just as in nature, when we see the raw display of electricity in the form of lightning, Yet both forms of power are from God to get our attention. Both can be received for our benefit and for His glory. The promises of God in God's Word shows us how we can deliberately, purposely, and regularly tap into the power of God as often as we like and need. Devotional tongues is a good example of this in 1 Corinthians 14.18. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Why else would He make them available for us? just so we can gaze at them and wonder from a distance? Clearly, God's intentions is for us to utilize His precious promises and His anointing for our lives so we can be blessed and, more importantly, to be a blessing to others. God's Word shows us how to plug into God's power to light up our lives as simple as plugging a lamp into a wall socket. We can tap into the power of God for our benefit and for others just as easily as we have learned to harness the power of electricity through knowledge and understanding of spiritual laws, just as we have come to understand natural laws. Since the anointing flows like electricity, one can say that each believer connects to the power source, the Holy Spirit, through faith in God's Word. Faith is the catalyst that unlocks the power of God, His grace that is in His Word. Unfortunately, doubt and unbelief or not walking in love grieves the Holy Spirit and thus short-circuits the flow of God's power in and through our lives. As I'm sharing these truths in this episode, I can almost sense the objections of religious folks on this. How dare you think that you can use God's power for yourself and regard it as something common as you would use electricity? God is sovereign and mysterious and would never allow himself to be abused and used by people. Who said anything about abusing God or taking advantage of Him? It was His idea in the first place. Ephesians 1.3 Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. 2 Peter 1.3 His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. 2 Corinthians 1.18 But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in Him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. So through him the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his Spirit in our hearts 
as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Psalms 103 verse 2 Praise the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Matthew 7 9 Jesus said, Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? John 10.10 in the Amplified, Jesus said the thief comes only in order to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have and enjoy life and have it in abundance, to its full, till it overflows. 3 John verse 2 in the Amplified, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in every way and that your body may be kept well, even as I know your soul keeps well and prospers. 1 Timothy 6.17 Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. James 1.16 Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Our God is not stingy or withholding from his children. The character of God, as outlined by the Holy Scriptures, reveals a loving, generous Father. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that has a work within us, according to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Some unfortunate, religiously brainwashed folks have been sold a lie that God will make us poor and sick in order to keep us grateful and humble. The Lord reveals his heart in Matthew chapter 20, verse 1 through 16, in the parable of the workers in the vineyard, as it pertains to his generous nature apart from our works to deserve or earn anything from God. He just gives us his kingdom because of who he is. Matthew 20:15. Don't I have a right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So as I said before, I'm not being presumptuous or trying to selfishly exploit God by tapping into heaven's resources. I'm just responding to an invitation to come and dine. It would be rude for me to say no or to sheepishly take only a morsel of God's grace out of being religious through false humility or ignorance. I hate religion. It's from the devil. And it's a stumbling block and robs people of God's grace and goodness for their lives. Luke 12.32 in the Amplified Do not be seized with alarm and struck with fear, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Psalms 23, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalms 91, 15. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Okay, back to the healing anointing. So as we've been seeing in the natural, just as electricity has the potential for all kinds of wonderful applications in one's life, but it's not automatic without us doing something to tap into that power. It's the same with God's power, the anointing. That simply means that as we learn more about the anointing and what God's word says about it, 
will be able to flow with the anointing, tap into the power, and gain greater benefits from it for God's glory and to be a blessing to others. The Switch of Faith Now that we understand something about the power of God as heavenly electricity, as it were, let's extend the analogy a step further concerning faith. Another thing about the laws that govern this heavenly substance is this fact. The thing that turns the heavenly power on in the spiritual realm can be compared to an electrical switch on a wall that turns on earthly power or electricity in the natural realm. In the natural, when we turn a light switch on, electricity flows right into the lighting fixtures and lights up the room. When we turn the switch off, the lights go out. So in the spiritual realm, the things that turns on the heavenly power could be called the switch of faith. Mark 5.25 And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Remember Jesus said to the woman with the issue of blood in Mark chapter 5 verse 34, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Obviously, it was not the Lord's will for her to suffer sickness and disease. Jesus said that it was her faith that had made her whole. In other words, she had turned on the switch of faith for healing and activated the power of God. Notice that Jesus immediately was aware that the anointing flowed out from him. Also notice that the woman with the issue of blood cooperated with the anointing that flowed from Jesus into her, and she was healed. The healing anointed flowed out of Jesus' clothes and into the woman with the issue of blood. But Jesus said to her, Your faith has healed you. It wasn't the healing anointing alone that healed this woman. It was her faith in the healing anointing that healed her. Her faith triggered God's power, the healing anointing, to flow into her. And we know that God doesn't show favoritism, so that healing power or virtue is available for all people today. Or we could say it like this, it was her faith and the healing anointing that healed her. The healing power of God, the anointing, is a tangible substance. It is like heavenly materiality. Believe that, and it can begin to work for you. There is a God word and a human side to everything. When it comes to receiving, it's not all up to God, nor is it all up to people. God provides the grace, the power of God in his word, which is anointed by the Holy Spirit. And we mix it with the principles of faith, that's our part, and God's creative power is thus released. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so no one can boast. This principle here does not only apply to the new birth, but to all the promises of God. Now Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has healed you. Some might say, I thought it was the power which flowed out of him that made her whole. Well, really, it was a combination of the two. Both of them 
the faith and the power are important in their place. Someone who is anointed might minister the power of God, and the anointing may flow through him or her just as electricity flows through a conduit. Yet, although electricity is present all the time, unless someone turns a switch on, there's not going to be any manifestation of it. In the same way, we have to turn the switch of our faith on to receive a manifestation of the healing power of God, or anything else from the Lord for that matter. Many people have thought that if the power of God was present, it would just manifest itself automatically, regardless of whether or not anyone believed in it or believed for it. Then if there was no manifestation, they've thought, well, the power is not here. Then they'd break out and start singing, O Lord, send the power just now. Because they couldn't see the anointing or feel it in manifestation, they thought it wasn't there. But the power of God is always present everywhere all the time. God is omnipresent. God didn't leave most of his power over in one town and then leave only a little bit of it wherever you are. No, wherever God is, all of his ability, all of his power, all of his capabilities are present everywhere at the same time. What God is looking for is faith. And that is what he responds to. Luke 18.8 However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Likewise, in Luke 6.19, folks came to Jesus to be healed. It was the touch of faith that caused the power to flow. Faith completes the circuit between people and God for his power to flow to hurting humanity. So the battle is just to get people to believe the Bible for whatever they need. Luke 6.17 A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea and from Jerusalem and from all the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him, because power was coming from him and healing them all. So it's really simple. If the power of God is not flowing, no one has plugged into God through faith in his word. Just as our house is wired for the power of electricity to flow, the power is always available to be tapped into. So it is with the power of God. The Holy Spirit is everywhere in the earth today, ready to give power to the faint. Isaiah 40 verse 29 and 2 Chronicles 16.9 Unless we plug into the power of God through faith, there will be no manifestation of God's power in our lives. It is never God's fault when we fail to plug into His amazing grace and receive our needs met, because the power is always available for us to tap into and to receive 24-7. Many people don't know how to connect with God. Instead of being taught faith, they have been indoctrinated with a psychology of unbelief and doubt, or emotion, to plead and to beg in a desperate manner. They want to be healed, but still don't know if it's God's will for them to be healed. As a result, they are not making a connection with God through faith, and their lives remain void of God's power. That's not God's fault. Romans 1.16 I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The good news is that every sinner, anywhere, at any time, can receive the power of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Every saint can appropriate, tap into, and receive the power of God to meet any and every need of their life through faith in God's Word. So the key to having this revelation knowledge is acting on it. However, not everyone is at that level in his or her faith where one can just believe God's Word for himself or herself and receive healing through faith in God's Word alone even though that's God's highest and best. Therefore, we should endeavor to teach and preach all of it, every side of divine healing, 
and to minister to people on all levels of faith and by all methods of healing. Notice in Hebrews 4.2, the words combine, or in the King James Version, mix, in conjunction with entering into God's rest. The promised land for the new covenant believer is to experience all of Christ's redemption and inheritance for this life. God's word contains God's grace and power. It is released through our faith. Faith is the catalyst that brings on the reaction or manifestation of God's power in our lives. Hebrews 4 verse 1 Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard it did not combine it or mix it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest. So we can see that it's not a matter of having more power that gets the job done. We must turn our faith on in God's word in order for God's power to flow into our lives. It's all about connection. Certainly, it's true that it's not by might or by power, but by his spirit, says the Lord Almighty, according to Zechariah 4.6. However, we still have to cooperate with God's spirit by believing in him if we want to receive the blessing of God. We've got to learn to mix faith with the power. The power of prayer brings into manifestation the power of God, but it must be the prayer of faith. James 5.14 Is any one of you sick? He should call for the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man or woman of God is powerful and effective. In the Amplified, in chapter 5, verse 16, the earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous man or woman of God makes tremendous power available, dynamic in its working. Now notice that the prayer of a righteous person makes tremendous power available. This tremendous power is in the spirit realm all the time, isn't it? But the prayer of the righteous person makes it available. Or let's say it another way. The prayer of the righteous brings the power of God into manifestation. Old-time Pentecostals used to call it praying the power down. Therefore, the biblical principle of making God's power available is through the prayer of faith. When it comes to praying for others, even though the power is in manifestation, faith has to be exercised by the individual in order to tap into it. For it's by faith that we receive any and everything that comes from God. Because we read in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 that without faith it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In ministering the tangible healing power of God, one can lay hands on people and sense the power of God go into them and then come right back out. And why is that? Because they didn't take hold of it. This usually happens because folks are trying to receive healing with their mind. The same can be said of receiving the baptism with the Holy Spirit and speaking with other tongues. But divine healing is not mental. We can't contact God with our mind because he's not a mind. He is a spirit. John 4.24 Jesus said God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. Natural people attempt to heal through the mind or through the five physical senses. But when God comes on the scene as the healer, he heals through the person's spirit. Let me explain. God contacts us through our spirit, not through our mind or our body. Certainly those get affected. As I have said, God is not a mind. 
Likewise, he is not a man. Numbers 23.19 Although he has a spirit body over in the spirit world, angels do too, God is not a physical being. He is a spirit being. Therefore, he contacts us through our own spirit, just as we contact him through our spirit. When God heals, he does heal physically. However, it's through the human spirit or a person's heart where faith dwells. God heals people through their faith. And the Bible says that faith is of the heart, the human spirit. So divine healing is not mental as Christian science, unity, and other metaphysical teachers claim. Neither is it only physical as many in the medical world claim. No, it's actually spiritual, but only in the sense that it involves faith in the power of God as God's word proclaims. When people quit trying to contact God with their mind and start believing they receive in their heart, they are healed instantly. We have to start learning to believe we receive the things of God by faith, not by our feelings. And we believe with our heart, according to Romans 10.10, for it is with your heart that you believe unto salvation, healing, are all the promises of God. Sometimes the healing power of God is ministered to a sick person so that the person is manifestedly supercharged with heavenly electricity. Yet no real or final healing takes place until something occurs that releases the faith of the individual. The power of God could be in manifestation to where the whole place is shaking, but that power is not released in us except through faith. Confession is a great way of turning the switch of faith on. Healing your mind, and I take it now in Jesus' name. That simple confession is a way to release our faith and let the power in. Faith in God's word opens the door for Jesus to come in and heal us. Revelation 3.20 Jesus said, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. That is why it is so important to teach people how to operate in faith. When they mix their faith with the power of God, healing comes forth. The healing anointing is a tangible substance. And the word of God reveals to us the rules and laws that govern its operation. The Lord Jesus Christ revealed and applied the laws of the Spirit, which demonstrated the fact that the healing power of God is a tangible substance, a heavenly materiality. Now we won't receive any of this power from heaven if we don't believe there's any there. If we don't believe it exists, we'll never get it applied to our circumstances to do us any good. The healing power of God will not benefit us until we believe in it and lay hold of it biblically by faith and simply receive it. But thank God, through our faith in the holy written word and in the mighty power of God, we can receive divine healing by simply believing what God's word says about the healing anointing. We can enjoy all the blessings and benefits of this power from heaven that is available to us today. Well, thank God for the word and thank God for every avenue of healing. Number one, simple faith in the anointed word of God. Number two, the laying on of hands by believers anointed with the Holy Spirit. Number three, those specially anointed to minister to the sick. And number four, for supernatural manifestations of the healing power of God according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We know that each of these methods of healing is scriptural and that they work mightily on our behalf when we mix our faith with the power. The laying on of hands. As Christians, we have the nature of God in us. We have the life of God in us. The Spirit dwells within us. It is that power within us that goes out through our hands in the name of Jesus and heals the sick. Sometimes it is accompanied by manifestations. 
the recipient actually senses the life of God being poured into his or her body. Other times, there is no manifestation. It makes no difference whether or not there is any feeling. Our evidence that the one we are praying for is healed is based upon the integrity of the Holy Scriptures. The laying on of hands is a fundamental principle of the doctrine of Christ. Hebrews 6.1 Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. The laying out of hands is a doctrine of the church. Let's examine these elementary principles of Christ. The first one is repentance from acts that lead to death. This is talking about progressive sanctification in the life of the believer to live a holy life and turn from the old way of life we had as sinners. Number two, faith toward God. Understanding the word of faith and the spirit of faith principles in the Bible are crucial for living the successful Christian life. It's only through faith that we know God, live for Him, and participate in His kingdom. Number three, the doctrine of baptisms. Notice that this is in the plural. There are four baptisms spoken of in the New Testament. First, there is the new birth. When a person is born again, he or she is baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12.13 Second, there is a water baptism, which is an outward sign of an inward work of grace. Acts 10 verse 46 Third, there is the baptism in the Holy Spirit, with the Bible evidence of speaking in other tongues. Acts 10.45 and chapter 11 verse 15 And number four, the baptism of martyrdom. Mark 10.38 Jesus said, You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup that I will drink, or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And the fourth elementary principle of Christ is the laying out of hands, and we will explore this more in a moment. Number five is the resurrection of the dead. Notice Hebrews 6.2 does not say the resurrection. It says the resurrection of the dead. Had it only said the resurrection, there would be just one resurrection. But there is more than one resurrection. So it says resurrection of the dead. This includes the first resurrection, the second resurrection, and all other resurrections. It includes the fact that the dead in Christ shall be raised first. Then we who are alive and remain at the coming of Christ will be caught up too. This is the rapture of the saints. Number six is eternal judgment. Again, it is not the doctrine of the eternal judgment. It is simply and eternal judgment. This is because there is more than one judgment, and saints and sinners are covered in this doctrine. These six fundamental principles are the foundation upon which the church is built. Therefore, not one of them should be retreated lightly or cast aside as something unimportant to the body of Christ. As a matter of fact, the Bible calls these truths elementary, or milk, for new believers to digest. Before a child goes to high school or middle school, they first go to elementary school in order to learn the basics. Sadly, many Christians do not even understand these basic doctrines of the church, even after being saved for many years. And really, it's not their fault. Their church leaders have not exposed them to them. Hebrews 5.11 We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. 
This failure of grasping the basics is partly attributed to the individual, but mostly it's the fivefold ministry gifts found in Ephesians 4.11. Their responsibility is to train believers in these and other essential truths of the Word. The fivefold ministry gifts are the leadership gifts in the body of Christ. Their effectiveness to fulfill Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 through 16 will be reflective in the lives and the fruitfulness of all believers. Starting with Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now, if I were to say, I don't much believe in the new birth, water baptism, or the baptism in the Holy Spirit, folks would be ready to quit on me right now and run me out, and I wouldn't blame them. And folks would be certain that something was wrong with me if I were to say, I don't think the dead will ever be resurrected, or I don't go along with this judgment business. I don't think there's going to be any judgment. Again, Christians would say, there's something wrong with that fellow. He's not solid. He doesn't believe the fundamental principles of the doctrine of Christ. Well, no matter what else we believe, we must believe in the fundamentals. I can have fellowship with anyone who believes the fundamentals. And if one of the fundamental principles is right, they're all right. We can't leave any one of them out. The Bible has a great deal to say about the doctrine of laying on of hands. That's why it's surprising to me that many Christians see no significance at all in this scriptural ordinance and doctrine. In the church on a whole, we hear lots of sermons on repentance, and we hear a little bit of preaching on faith, but we rarely hear any teaching on the laying of hands. The lack of teaching on the subject has given many believers the wrong impression that it's unimportant and of no particular value to us. But if it's a fundamental principle of the doctrine of Christ, it is valuable. To deny, minimize, or ignore this fundamental principle of Jesus Christ is a serious matter. Impartation Actually, the laying on of hands is a theme that runs throughout the entire Bible. There are several scriptural purposes for employing the laying on of hands. So let's examine some examples from both the Old and New Testaments. The central purpose for the laying on of hands is impartation and the transference of the anointing into another person. First, it is used for imparting a blessing. Jacob laid his hands on his grandsons and spoke words of blessing over them. Genesis 48.14 But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger, and crossing his arms he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. All throughout the ministry of Jesus, he was regularly laying his hands on people. On one occasion, he released a blessing upon children through the laying on of hands, Matthew 19.13. Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Another form of impartation is separation unto ministry and equipping. 
The Bible reveals that another purpose for which the laying on of hands was used was to equip men and women to serve God. The following passage of scripture tells us that when the time had come for Moses to leave this earth, God directed Moses to lay his hands upon Joshua, Israel's next leader, to impart a measure of the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon him. Numbers 27.18 So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hands on him. Have him stand before Eleazar the priest and the entire assembly and commission him in their presence. Give him some of your authority so that the whole Israelite community will obey him. He is to stand before Eleazar the priest who will obtain decisions for him by inquiring of the Urim before the Lord. At his command, he and the entire community of the Israelites will go out, and at his command, they will come in. Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and had him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole assembly. Then he laid his hands on him and commissioned him, as the Lord instructed through Moses. Later in the book of Deuteronomy, we read that Joshua had the same spirit of wisdom that Moses had because Moses had laid his hands upon him. This implies that what Moses had was transferred to Joshua through the laying on of hands. Deuteronomy 34.9 Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. A common New Testament practice was the laying on of hands on those who were being ordained and separated unto ministry. Acts 13 verse 1 In the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, Coniger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. The laying on of hands was also used in imparting spiritual gifts. Now when I say spiritual gifts, I'm not talking about what we call the nine gifts or manifestations of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. What I'm talking about is similar to what took place in Exodus chapter 29, when God imparted through Moses an anointing of the Holy Spirit and wisdom to Joshua. In the New Testament example of this, we see Paul addressing the Roman believers and Timothy. Romans chapter 1 verse 11, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. 2 Timothy 1.6 For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. 1 Timothy 4.14 Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message, when the body of elders laid their hands on you. What is interesting to note in both examples is the reference to faith and the action of fanning into flame the gift of God. In other words, once grace deposits and truth impartations are made into a person's life, they are not just to sit on it and become fat and sassy. We still need to act on spiritual disciplines of reading our Bible and praying regularly and put into practice those gifts from God. Otherwise, they will grow dormant and cold and inoperative. That's not what it means to be a good steward of the grace of God, now is it? 2 Corinthians 10.15 Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our area of activity among you will greatly expand, so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. 
Ephesians chapter 3 verse 2 Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation. As I have already written briefly, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace, given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Colossians 1.28 We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. The doctrine of laying out of hands does not end with the ordination of ministers, however, as so many denominations believe. That is only one facet of laying out of hands as we see in the scriptures. There is also scriptural precedence for the laying out of hands on those being installed in certain church offices. In Acts chapter 6, seven men were selected to wait on tables, freeing up the apostles to give themselves continually to prayer in the ministry of the word. The apostles laid their hands on the seven, who were called deacons or helpers in the Greek. Acts chapter 6 verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now another example of impartation is when it comes to receiving the baptism with the Holy Spirit. This is another use of the laying on of hands in the New Testament, was for helping believers receive the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 8.17, when Peter and John laid their hands on Philip's Samaritan converts, they received the Holy Spirit. Let's read that in Acts chapter 4 verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Then in Acts 19.6, Paul laid his hands on the disciples at Ephesus, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Acts 19 verse 1. While Paulus was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. 
On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. In nearly every instance in the book of Acts, where people were filled with the Holy Spirit, they received by the laying on of hands. The exceptions were the spontaneous outpouring of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 10. Of course, people can be filled with the Holy Spirit in other ways, but the laying on of hands is one scriptural method. So we see the laying on of hands has several distinct purposes. Now we come to ministering healing through the laying on of hands. There are more scriptural references concerning healing in connection with the laying on of hands than concerning anything else. Every Christian should practice the doctrine of laying on of hands on the sick, because Jesus incorporated it into the Great Commission. In the New Testament, we see some distinct purposes for which the laying on of hands was used. The number one reason the laying on of hands was used in the New Testament was to minister healing. Mark chapter 16 verse 17, Jesus said, And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. Notice that in verse 18, the sick shall recover. Yet some folks think it says, lay hands on the sick and they'll get worse. Or lay hands on the sick, and if it is God's will, they will recover. If not, they will remain sick for some sovereign reason. No, let's be as definite as scripture is about it. Let's just say what the Bible says. Believers shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Jesus Christ himself freely employed laying on of hands and healing people. In Mark chapter 6, we see Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth. In verse 5, it states, He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick folk and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Notice this text is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God. It doesn't say he wouldn't do mighty miracles in Nazareth. It says he couldn't. It seems, therefore, that the laying on of hands will work when nothing else will. So what we see is that the few who were healed that day were healed by the laying on of Jesus' hands. There are several accounts of Jesus laying hands on people in the New Testament. Matthew 8.15 says that when Jesus entered Peter's house, he found Peter's mother-in-law sick with a fever. So he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. Praise God, the blind man who was healed by the laying on of Jesus' hands. Some will say Jesus prayed for the blind man twice. I really don't know that he even prayed for him at all. For the Bible does not say he prayed. The Bible says he laid his hands on him twice. Therefore, it is scriptural correct to lay our hands a second time on a sick person if necessary. You know it's really good to know what Jesus did in certain circumstances. Then we know what to do as well. Mark 8.22 They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. In the case of the deaf man, the Bible does not say that people asked Jesus to heal the man, although it is implied. 
it says they asked him to put his hands on him. In those two cases, notice that groups of people brought the blind man and the deaf man to Jesus. These people, as well as the sick themselves, believed in the laying on of hands. The multitudes expected healing through the laying on of hands, and they got the desired results. Mark 7.32 There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly speak, and they begged him to place his hand on the man. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears, then spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said apathatha, which means be opened. At this the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak plainly. People will say, I had hands laid on me for healing, and I did not recover. Well, the million-dollar question is to ask those same people, well, did you expect to recover? They usually answer no. I just thought I'd try it out and see if anything would happen. People who are just trying it out are not going to get healed because they're not in faith. If we don't expect to be healed or delivered through the laying on of hands, then having hands laid upon us will be in vain. If we want the laying on of hands to work for us, we have got to believe in it. Without faith, the laying on of hands is a mere ritual, and nothing happens. I think these folks see the laying on of hands like rubbing their socks on the carpet during winter, hoping some sparks will fly and perhaps zap them with some healing power. Mark chapter 5 tells us that Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue in Galilee, also believed in the laying on of hands. He didn't say, come and pray for my daughter who is sick. He didn't even say, come and heal her. He said in verse 23, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Jairus believed his daughter would be healed when hands were laid on her, and he made a confession of his faith. Let's read that in Mark chapter 5 verse 22. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. While Jesus was on the way, some people from Jairus' house notified him that in the meantime his daughter had died. Notice in verse 41, it says that Jesus took her by the hand. In other words, Jesus touched her. He took her by the hand, and she was raised from the dead and healed. Let's go on reading in verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid, just believe. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumim, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this, and he told them to give her something to eat. Sadly, some might try to argue that since this healing took place during Jesus' earthly ministry, it has no application for us today. Yes, Jesus laid hands on sick people, but he exhorted all believers to lay hands on the sick too. In Mark 16 verse 18, Jesus said they will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. If the Great Commission does not apply today, then sure, laying hands on the sick has been done away with as well. As long as the gospel message of salvation is being preached throughout the world, then it will continue to contain a message of physical healing as well. Matthew 24:14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world 
as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. People still preach repentance and water baptism. No one objects to that. Well then, why not preach all of the Great Commission? Why stop with just part of it? So why not preach the laying on of hands? The laying on of hands is part of the Great Commission too. The disciples obviously took Jesus seriously because we see in Acts chapter 5 verse 12, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. When Paul was shipwrecked on an island called Malta, the father of the ruler of the island was ill. So Paul went into his house, and after prayer and the laying on of hands, the man was healed along with a whole lot of other people on the island. Obviously, Paul believed in and ministered healing through the laying on of hands. Acts 28 verse 8. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him, and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. There are other unique ways in which healing was administered. Not only were the sick healed, but the demon-oppressed were delivered as cloths Paul had laid his hands on were laid upon their bodies. These cloths were anointed with the same power Paul was anointed with. When we talk about anointed cloths, we do not mean cloths anointed with oil. Acts chapter 19 verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Sadly, some people in modern times might think that the transfer of the anointing through a cloth is only superstition. But it's not superstition. It's a viable fact. It happened just the way the Word of God said it happened. In other words, the healing anointing emanating from Paul transformed those handkerchiefs into storage batteries of Holy Spirit power. When they were laid on the sick, they charged the body with the healing anointing, and the diseases departed from them. So God had wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, according to verse 11. Paul laid his hands upon the cloths. God uses men's hands and women's hands. He works through their hands. Yet some will say, the apostles could do that, but it is not for us today. Why are they always trying to dismiss all the miracles in the Bible? It seems to me that intelligent people should have caught on to that worn-out lie by now. Jesus didn't say these signs would follow just the apostles. He said that these signs would follow those who believe. Now consider Acts 5.15 in reference to Peter's shadow coming in contact with people. People had faith in the anointing of the Holy Spirit to heal them. Notice also in verse 16, And all of them were healed. The word all means everyone without exception. Now just consider the law of averages in play here concerning the sheer volume of people in Jerusalem. If it was possible for it not to be God's will for some of them to be healed, then surely the old if it be thy will clause would have been inserted into this verse. But it wasn't, praise God. Acts 5.15 People brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. We don't have to run around looking for someone special to lay hands on us. It doesn't make any difference who lays hands on us for healing, because what the Bible says. The truth is, if anyone who believes in healing through the laying on of hands lays hands on us, we'll be healed. 
Our faith is not in the person praying for us, rather our faith is in the Word of God. So to say that any believer cannot lay hands on the sick today is to say that one of the other fundamental principles of the doctrine of Christ have been done away with. And if the laying on of hands for healing has been done away with, then no one would have a right to believe in the doctrine of repentance or any of the fundamental principles of the doctrine of Christ. For example, the doctrine of baptisms includes water baptism. If you attended a church service where people were baptized in water upon the profession of their faith, you would probably never doubt the efficacy of that ceremony because you read about this ordinance in the Word, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1-2. through Well, the doctrine of laying out of hands is just as holy and sacred as the other fundamental principles of the doctrine of Christ. I don't know about you, but I'm not going to take anything away from the doctrine of Christ. I believe all of it. I'm a follower of Christ. I, for one, am a stickler for the doctrines of Christ. And one of the doctrines of Christ is the laying on of hands. The laying on of hands can be done in two ways. First, any believer can lay hands upon a fellow believer as a point of contact to release faith and expect that person to be healed. There are some people, friends and neighbors, for example, we can pray for whom no one else could. It also is scriptural for husbands and wives to lay hands on each other and parents to lay hands on their children when they are sick and expect them to be healed in the name of the Lord Jesus. Second, there is such a thing as ministry of laying out of hands, a special anointing. As God wills, a person can be supernaturally anointed with healing power, like Jesus or Paul was anointed. When the person who has a ministry of laying out of hands lays hands on the sick in obedience to the spiritual law of contact and transmission, His or her hands transmit God's healing power into the body of the sick person, affecting a healing and a cure. Here are some examples of a point of contact. Acts 28.8 On the island of Malta, Paul heals the official's father. Acts 19.11 People were being healed and delivered by Paul. John 9.6 Jesus heals a man that was born blind. Luke 13.10 Jesus heals a woman bent over by a spirit of infirmity. Luke 4.40, Jesus heals a crowd of people at Capernaum. Mark 8.22, Jesus heals a blind man at Bethesda. Matthew 15.29 and Mark 7.33, Jesus heals a deaf and dumb man. Matthew 10.5 and Mark 6.13 and Luke 9.2, Jesus sends 12 disciples out. Matthew 13.54, Mark 6.5 and Luke 4.16, Jesus laid his hands on a few sick folk in Nazareth. In Mark 3, 7, a large crowd came to touch Jesus, and they were healed. Matthew 14, 36, in Mark 6, 56, and Luke 6, 19, people of Gennesaret recognized Jesus. Matthew 9, 29, Jesus heals two blind men. Matthew 9, 20, Mark 5, 21, and Luke 8, 34, a woman with the issue of blood is healed. Matthew 8, 15, and Mark 1, 31, Peter's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and was healed. Matthew 8.3 and Mark 1.40 and Luke 5.13, Jesus heals a man of leprosy. Acts 8.15, Peter and John pray for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit. Acts 19.6, Paul prays for the twelve men near Ephesus and they receive the Holy Spirit. Acts 9.17, Ananias prays for Saul to be healed and receive the Holy Spirit. Matthew 19.13, Mark 10.13 and Luke 18.15, Jesus blesses the little children, just like Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph did. 
Acts 20.10, Eutychus fell out of a third-story window and died, but then was raised from the dead. Matthew 9.25 and Mark 5.35 and Luke 8.54, a little girl is raised from the dead. Finally, let's talk about empty hands on empty heads. Now, I realize that there is an unprofitable kind of laying out of hands. There are extremes of it in the church world. One extreme is a mere ritual. There are churches that have a ritual of laying hands on people to confirm them. According to some church creeds, one receives the Holy Spirit at this time. Not at all talking about the baptism with the Holy Spirit. But this is a mere ritual and a formality, and nothing happens. On the other hand, there have been extremes even in full gospel circles, where people have had hands laid on them for nearly everything you could mention, and some you couldn't. I don't know about you, but I am not going to be frightened out of a New Testament practice because of fanaticism, nor am I going to be frozen out because of a formality. The real is not done away with because of excesses. I'm going to practice the New Testament doctrine of laying out of hands, and it's going to produce New Testament results. One thing is for certain. When we lay hands on folks, it must be for biblical reasons. The Word of God and the Holy Spirit always agree. So if the Holy Spirit leads us to minister in the laying on of hands, it will be in harmony with Scripture. Without faith in God's Word as we minister the laying on of hands, we will be guilty of laying empty hands on empty heads. 1 Timothy 5.22 Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So let's enforce the devil's defeat through the Word, the Blood, and the name of Jesus. So here we are at the end of this season on Healing is the Children's Bread, 12 episodes that have taken a comprehensive look at the subject of divine healing. Additionally, we have exposed religious traditional cows that needed to be knocked over, along with practical principles on how to apply God's redemptive provision of healing in our lives by God's grace and through our faith in God's Word. Throughout these episodes, I have made several references from the ministry works of Kenneth E. Hagen, F.F. Bodsworth, E.W. Kenyon, and Charles Capps. Every good and perfect gift comes from our Heavenly Father. We can't claim anything for ourselves, nor can we slap a patent on revelations from the Lord and copyright spiritual truths given by the Holy Spirit. These things belong to the whole body of Christ. John chapter 3 verse 26 They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6, Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? So to God be all the glory. God bless. I highly encourage you to continue listening to the Word of Life Study Series podcast and encourage your friends to tune in as well. The scriptures encourage us in Acts chapter 17 verse 11 to receive the message with great eagerness and to examine the scriptures every day in order to confirm the truth that you're hearing. 
God's Word is our final authority for all matters that pertain to life and godliness. I'd like to close this episode by praying over you according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and His incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of His mighty strength which He exerted in Christ when God raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His own right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And in chapter 2, verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Be blessed and see you soon.